Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. We'll begin our reading in verse 1, sorry, verse 22 of chapter 1, and then we'll break the chapter break, we'll violate the chapter break and move to verse 3 of chapter 2. So we'll begin 1 Peter 1.22 through 2.3. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. I have a quotation to read to introduce our sermon today from the Reverend Richard Sibbs. Uh, He is sometimes called the sweetest of the Puritans, and he is sometimes called the sweet dropper. Richard Sibbs says, Question, if you ask, why must we grow up and be fed still? The answer is, do do but ask your own souls whether there be not a perpetual renewing of corruption which still breaks out into new guilt every day. Therefore we have need to feed every day anew upon the promises, upon old promises with new affections. Somewhat breaks out ever and anon which abaseth the soul of a Christian that makes him go with a sharp appetite to the blessed truths that feed his soul. Answer number two, and then again, we need a great deal of strength, which is maintained by feeding. Besides the guilt of the soul, there needs strength for duty, which must be fetched from the blessed word of God and the comforts thence, whereby we are able to withstand and resist, to stand and do all that we do, And answer number three, and then we are set upon by variety of temptations within and without, which which require variety of wisdom and strength, all which must be gotten by feeding. And therefore you see a Christian for his sustenance and being hath need of a feeding, cherishing, and maintaining still by the sweet and blessed directions and promises out of the word of God. And there you have Richard Sibbs. Last week when we began our study of chapter 2 verse 1, we looked at the continuity. That's why we read from uh, 22 of chapter 1 as our beginning today. The command, the imperative in the passage, is to love one another with a pure heart fervently. He will say that this loving one another with a pure heart fervently is only available to those who are born again. It is because we have been born again that we ought then to love one another with a pure heart fervently. This is commensurate with, it is consistent with the new birth. That's what he will say. And how is it that we are born again? We have seen in this passage, we are born again by the word and spirit of God. And so it is as if he, he will interrupt his flow for a moment in, our, uh, in, in the command to us to be, uh, to be in love with one another purely and with fervent hearts. He will interrupt that flow for a moment to tell us that we have been born again by the incorruptible word of God which never changes and never goes away. It always abides. It is as if he cannot help himself to talk about the means 
of our regeneration. And so he will interrupt the flow, but then he will come back to it in chapter 2, verse 1, and he will tell us that this loving one another with a pure heart fervently requires a couple of things. It requires, first of all, that we lay off certain things, that we lay them aside. And he will talk about malice and guile. And those in the singular, if you'll remember, two weeks ago we noted that they were in the singular. And then three things in plural, hypocrisies, envies, and all evil speakings. And those commentators that will tell you that malice and guile are the, are the foundation. And then the plurals are set forth as that which grows out of the foundation. Hypocrisies, envies, and evil speakings. I think they have it exactly right. So we have to put off, as we saw, the old man and put on the new man. And we spent a little bit of time last time with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Colossians chapter 3. All right, so then we moved on and we we spoke for a little bit about uh, newborn babes. But before we got to that topic in, in its fullness, we pulled up for a moment and we asked ourselves, what it means to be born again, and are we born again? And we must stop every now and then and ask ourselves that question. It will not do, will it, to presume, and that's what we heard two weeks ago, it will not do for us as God's people to presume upon our regeneration, but constantly to be involved with that means, with those means whereby the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Right? And so we look for those signs of regeneration. Not that they themselves are that which saves us, but that they are those things which grow up out of the seed which is incorruptible by which we are born again. And so we looked at uh, several searching questions two weeks ago, asking ourselves whether or not we are born again not to make you doubt not to make you doubt of god's goodness or love or care but to but as a hedge against uh, presumption we heard about that a moment ago didn't we in deuteronomy chapter 8 where the lord says when you have eaten and are full don't presume against the lord your god that because he has blessed you that if you turn away from him he will continue to bless you because he will not and don't say it's because of my power and the, and the might of my hand that I, have, that I have gotten me this wealth. No, it is the Lord that gives the power to get wealth. And if we might transfer that now to our passage, it is the Lord that is responsible for your regeneration and your sustenance in that, that you are sustained in it. However, he has chosen to work that in you, beloved, through means. This is the caricature of Calvinism, isn't it? The caricature of Calvinism is that, oh no, it's fatalism instead. It's it's apart from means. You're elect, so you'll be saved no matter what you do. And the Lord has simply not ordered human history and human redemption in that way. He has ordered it in the way of means and the means of grace and making use of them and being warmed by them and pressing us ahead with that wind at our backs, with His grace at our backs, pushing us forward toward heaven in the use of all these things. And so we, we are then uh, uh, properly abhorrers of presumption and fatalism. And we are instead those who embrace all the means of grace, recognizing that in them the Lord has been pleased to give us life. And to sustain us in that life. So that's pretty much where we ended up last time, two weeks ago. So let's go ahead and pick up uh, this next phrase that Peter will speak of where we put off all these things. And then as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. I'd like to speak with you about what Peter means when he talks about us as newborn babes. There are times in the Bible where the term babe or newborn babes or little children and so on, where, where those kinds of terms are used, and they're used to, to, um, to convict. 
the people of God. Uh, the apostle will say at the end of Hebrews chapter 5, by now you ought to be teachers, but you're still babies. That's intended as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a correction to them. The apostle Paul will say the same thing, won't he, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he'll say to them, uh, I could not speak to you as mature in Christ, as adults, but as babes. You are yet babes in that you are carnal. And in that carnality, what do you say? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. Don't think of this as, as being a mark of distinguishing maturity, Paul says. This kind of criticism and carnality is a sign that you are still babes in Christ. And I am not able to feed you strong meat but milk instead. Okay, so there are times in the Bible where we are spoken of as Christians as children. And that is intended to wake us up and shake us up that we are behaving ourselves in a way not fitting of our profession of Christ. This is not one of those places in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is not using the term babe here as a pejorative, as an insult, as a corrective. He's using it as something uh, to present to us something that we all must embrace. Now let's talk about several reasons why he would use such a term as this. First, we are spoken of as newborn babes because of the context that he is in of being born again. You have been born again, Peter will say. And as those who are born again, you are like those newly born into your new life. You have new life from Christ. You have, beloved, new life from his spirit. And we enter into that life not as what we shall be, full grown, but we enter into that life as newborns. And so the analogy of being born again or being born from above carries through even in that when we are born again, when we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, we are not regenerated in such a way as to go to zero, uh, from zero to 90 in an instant. What is being spoken of here is that we all enter in as babes. We all enter in as completely dependent upon the Lord. We are delivered from darkness and corruption and translated into the kingdom of his son. We are freed from the natural bondage that we are born with in this world to sin and Satan. Christian, consider the great privileges of the new birth. As we have seen in Revelation chapter 20 and in Romans chapter 6, beloved, this is life from the dead. We pray, don't we, for our little ones that are currently being fashioned in the womb. This is a wonderful thing to pray for. When they come out, we are want to say, you know, that, that you know, they're brand new. Well, they've got nine months. You know, there are some cultures in the history of the world who have celebrated uh, the, the birthdays of children as their day, as their year one, not their day one. Right? That when they come out, they're already the, a child of a year old because they have been, if you will, gestating for so long. Right? We think of it more in the other way when we, when we have a brand new baby. It is as if the child was not alive and now is. Now we know that that's not true. We, we, have, we have wombs today that have windows on them, don't they? Right? Wombs have windows now. We have things like ultrasounds and other such things where we have, we have snapshots and pictures and films into this hidden world, which was at one time a very hidden world, right? And so now, although we know better, we still have that moment of when someone is born. Now they're out. They're in the world. They have taken their first breaths as one of us. And we think of them as brand new. And beloved, the same is true with your regeneration. 
when you take your first breathings in your soul of the rarefied air of heaven, it is something that is indeed new. The Apostle Paul will put it this way, you are new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And so there is a sense in which, as being born again, we come into that existence as babes. Now, in some sense, we want to remember that we don't want to stay that way. We want to become full-grown. We don't want that pejorative that we heard earlier from 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews chapter 5. We don't want that to remain upon us as an insult, as a, as a corrective to us, because we haven't grown in grace. We're going to talk about Christian growth over the next few weeks. <coughs> but, but it is still true that in some sense we will always be children. Remember, in understanding be men, the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 14, but in malice be children. There's a sense in which we will always remain as children before the Lord. The second thing is that we must become like little children. That of such is the kingdom of God. And while Christ, I believe, when he says of such is the kingdom of God there, is talking about that, yes, little ones, babies, babies that you would carry in your arms. Brephos is the Greek word. That, yes, of such is the kingdom of God. That they are indeed a part of the kingdom of God. And we differ with our Baptist brethren on that, don't we? They would say that they're not formally in the kingdom of God, that outward administration of it. Although we're happy aren't we? That they are marvelously and wondrously inconsistent in that. And that they raise their children as Christians even though they would formally say they are not. We love them for that. <laughs> and yet, we remember also that Christ told adults that they needed to become like children as well. It's not just that of such is the kingdom of God, but it is also that there is a childlike attitude that we all must have and maintain if we would be members of the kingdom of Christ. Let's remember that from Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. Matthew chapter 18 will begin in verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a great passage, isn't it? It teaches us many, many important truths. The first thing that it teaches is that yes children of the church they do belong to Christ Th these are little ones of mine Jesus says they are my little ones children you are born into this world as the children of Christ because you were born into his kingdom by virtue of your parents being members in good standing and professors of Christ themselves and they haven't your parents' children, if I, if I could peer into your own home and family worship, haven't your parents always treated you as the children of Christ? Have they not brought you to him? Have they not brought his word to you? Have they not told you to rest upon him? Have they not told you that by virtue of his covenant promise that when you call upon him, he will always be there to answer you? Have they not raised you as the lambs of Christ? Of course they have. These are wonderful truths. And so Jesus will make that known here in Matthew chapter 18. But he will make something else known as well. He will put a child in the midst of his disciples and he will say that we adults are required to be like little children in some sense in order to enter into the kingdom of God. 
Well, what are those senses in which we must become like little children? What is Peter reminding us of when he says, as newborn babes? What is he reminding us of? First of all, he is reminding us of, our, of the dependence of children upon their parents. When something happens at home, or maybe even here at church, we've seen it play out, haven't we? When someone falls, when a little one falls, when a little one knocks their head, when maybe they get a little bit rambunctious and get themselves out of sorts, where do they run? Who consoles them? Oh, believe me, beloved, I love your children, not perhaps not as much as you do, but I love them. And when they fall, I would like to console them, but very often pastor's worthless in that. It's only mom or dad that can do that. It's only the parents that can take up that child in their arms and truly console them. We must be like children in that, beloved. We must not look to any other to console us but Christ. And if we don't look to Him like that and look to others to console us, beloved, we will always be disappointed and miserable thereby. Because we know, don't we, that while we would like to think others might be able to console us truly, the consolation that comes from God Himself through Christ is without compare. All those other consolations wax and they wane. They come and they go. But the consolations of God in Christ are sweet and everlasting. His mercy, haven't we just sung this? Ki la'olam chasdo, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. Do not place a human being in the place of those covenant mercies. Be like little children towards your heavenly Father. The second is that we look to him for provision, don't we? These are the fruits of our adoption. Some of us that were at the conference uh, a little over a week ago, we heard these things on Friday evening from Dr. Beakey as he talked about <laughs> adoption, the wonderful doctrine, Christian doctrine of adoption. Your own pastors preached some 50 sermons or so on that. Because every particular benefit that we receive, we receive as the dear children and fellow heirs of Christ. The dear children of our Father and fellow heirs of, with Christ. And so we look to the Lord for provision, for correction, for instruction, for understanding. And we would consider it, wouldn't we, a breach of promise, a breach of covenant, a breach of the family, if children had an ear more for their friends than for their God, or for their parents, excuse me. And yet, that is exactly what the world is trying to do to our families, to give our children a greater ear toward one another than toward their parents. We see the illicitness of that. And yet, beloved, we must also Consider that with regard to our being children before our Heavenly Father and how much our own ear is tuned to Him rather than the vain philosophies of this age. The third thing that Jesus would mean here is what our older divines would call credulity. Credulity is a great word, except we often use it with incredulity instead. We say something is unbelievable. We are incredulous. When someone says something to us, we just can't believe that. And that's because we are a nation of skeptics, after all. But beyond that, with regard to God, the children of God have a particular credulity. That is, they hear what he says and they believe it. They're inclined to do so. They're not inclined to hear the voice of strangers. Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And they will not follow the voice of strangers. There's a credulity that belongs to being children, as Jesus would describe it here. Jesus puts this child in the midst of, the, of his disciples, says, be like him. Be like him how? Not in maturity. Not like that. But be like him in dependence. 
Be like him in knowing who can console you. Be like him in knowing who provides for you and corrects you and cares for you. Be like him in knowing the word of his parents, how he is inclined to believe them and receive the word of your father like that. I think those pastors and preachers that have turned to Matthew 18 and the other parallel passages Luke, uh, Mark 10, 14, and 15, Luke 18, 16, and 17, that they turn to this passage and they will say something like this. Oh, well, what Jesus is telling them is to be innocent like children. What? Beloved, that is destructive of truth. There are so many wonderful things that you've already heard that are being taught here. To say to be innocent like a child is so far off the radar as to be listening to someone else's voice and exactly opposite of what Christ says here. No, it is, it is that credulity, it is that dependency, it is knowing where to be consoled and how to be instructed and so on and to rest upon God as Father in that way. And that's what we're reminded of when Peter tells us as newborn babes. That kind of childlike dependence upon the Lord. In provision and care, the baby looks to its mother and father. We look to our Father in heaven. In security and freedom from fear, finding solace and peace in our Father's embrace. In confidence regarding His word. In counsel and the unique place He occupies in our system of understanding and belief. In healing and relief of affliction, refusing to be consoled by any other. You remember Paul when he was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. You remember that, right? The next thing we hear about him is when the Lord comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go to the street called Straight, enter into a house there, and you'll find a man named Paul. He prayeth. <laughs> What's he doing praying? He has, he has realized for the first time in his life that he's been completely wrong. A murderer. He is seeking consolation from his heavenly father. And beloved, we know, don't we? He's finding it. He is finding it. He prayeth. So, his world has been turned upside down, but he knew where his consolation was. And then especially in the context of our passage in 1 Peter 2, our desire for that incorruptible word of God to be like that of newborn babies for the milk that is supplied for them. This is a desire that outstrips all other desire. It holds a unique place in the heart and affections and there is nothing like it and it alone is able to satisfy and nourish. In these ways, this is what Christ is talking about in Matthew 18, I believe. And then the third thing, first we possess new life in Christ, second we must be like little children. The third thing that Peter would remind us of here is that we are not what we once were but as babes, we are not what we shall be. So we have been born into a new life and we will grow to its maturity. And that, and that is the expectation of every newborn child, isn't it? That's right. And so there is a growth paradigm that belongs to us all. Truly, we know nothing as we ought to know, 1 Corinthians 8, 2. So this title speaks not of a static existence, but of growth, of maturation through proper means. It is important for us to remember that the standard or end of that growth is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that while in this tabernacle, in this body, we will continue that march toward him being conformed to his image. The Christian growth in this life will always be childlike as compared to our full inheritance and glory, but that doesn't mean it's not growth. It is still growth, even though it will always be childlike in comparison to our final estate. And then also the fourth point is that as children, we remember that it is a living child that grows. 
We have been given new spiritual life in Christ in order that we might grow in that life. The Lord's purpose for us, for us is that we would grow up to perfection. Grow up to that full maturity in Christ. We cannot grow as we ought if we cling to the marks of death in trespasses and sins. If we grow, we must put off these marks of the old man. And then as the living child can be said to grow and is alive in Christ, so we can be commanded to grow up into him. Uh, Turn to Hosea chapter 14. It's that final chapter. Hosea chapter 14, and we'll begin our reading in verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Notice the Lord says, I will heal their backslidings. That is, that they will, that, that former way of life of theirs shall be overturned. They are learning, they will learn to, this part of the Lord's promise, to put off the old man, to put off backsliding, to put off making a profession and yet it not being true nor real. No, they will be born again in reality and being born again they shall grow. The, the term that is translated as grow and spread here is to blossom. They will blossom. They will be turned into that, that part of the plant that is able again to reproduce and to bear fruit. They will blossom in that way. And so the growth that we look, that we look for here is indeed for those who are uh, alive in Christ, those who are born as living children into his kingdom, and we expect, just as we do with our children that are born into our families, that they will grow. So all four of these things are, uh, we are reminded of in Peter's use of the term newborn babes, that we have received new life in Christ. It is being alive from the dead, that we must become like children, that we are not yet what we shall be, and so there is something that we have to hope for, and then finally that growth is indeed appropriate for us as children. And so Peter is not using, uh, as newborn babes here, as a, as, a, as a corrective to their lack of maturity, but he is reminding us that there is an aspect of the Christian life which will always be recognized by the people of God as unfinished, childlike, with dependence upon our Father, and that will continue even into eternity, will it not? So... It's not always negative when Scripture calls you children. Here it's extremely positive and has so much to to commend itself as a a title to the Lord for. All right, so then what do babies do? They desire the sincere milk, this, the milk of the Word. Okay, so let us remember for a moment that the Word is this means of growth. That ye may grow thereby is how he will say it. The word is the means of growth, but didn't we already hear that the word was the means of regeneration? We did. Back in 122. You're born again, uh, not of of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth, Forever, and as we as we unpack that, we saw that Peter uses two different words in that phrase, uh, in that in that discourse between twenty two and twenty five. He talks about the words of God and then the word of God, both. 
And they both live and abide forever. They are that incorruptible seed. Beloved, if you have been born again by the word of God, seeing that the word of God lives and abides forever and is incorruptible, you can't be unborn again. This is one of the things Peter would have us to understand. <clears throat> this seed by which we are born again remains in us and we are indeed born again, never to be unborn. And he will make this very clear to us, won't, won't he, or sorry, not him, uh, but John will make that very clear to us in 1 John chapter 3. Please turn with me there. This word of God is the incorruptible seed by which we are born again. Beloved, does it give you comfort to know that you are born again by an incorruptible seed? That is, that this change that takes place within you is a change that is based upon the word of God ushered to your present thoughts by the spirit of God. And because it is the working of the word and spirit of God, it cannot be undone. It is an incorruptible working. This is what Peter would have us to know here. And so you don't say, well, I was born again by this incorruptible seed, but now, you know, uh, I need to be born again again. No. No, that's not how it works. The incorruptibility of the means of your regeneration means that your regeneration is also incorruptible. Cannot be undone. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his sin, <coughs> for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. He's going to go on to talk about Cain now who did not love his brother. That would be a light way to say it. He killed his brother, right? He loved him not to the very end of not loving him. He killed him and he was, quote, of the evil one. All right, so as we heard two weeks ago that there are things that are inconsistent with your eternal inheritance and then things that are incompatible with your eternal inheritance. John is speaking here in this term, sinning and doing sin of that which is incompatible with your eternal inheritance. Whosoever is born of God does not do things, does not live in things that are incompatible with your eternal inheritance. Why? Because the seed of God remains in you. That's why. I know that a, a baldly literal reading without the analogy of scripture of this has led some errant theologians into the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. That's an error. John is not here teaching that if you believe in Christ, if you abide in him, you will not sin ever. He's already handled that, hasn't he, in chapter 1? Didn't we hear that last week from Mr. Suarez? As we handled John 1, 8, 9, and 10. If we say we have not sinned, if we say we have no sin... We lie and do not the truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not talking about perfectionism here. John is talking about things that are incompatible with Christianity. And if those are the things that we do, notice in verse 4, whosoever committeth sin, and then notice also verse he that committeth sin. 
This is a special kind of Greek phrase that uh, he, he will not take the word sin and make it a verb, hamartizo, as we see sometimes in the New Testament. He will actually say, whosoever doeth sin. And in that phrase, what John intends to communicate here is that this becomes the warp and woof of how you live. Things that are incompatible with Christianity become your standard or habit. And it is impossible for those who abide in Christ to live in those sins. And remember the sins that we talked about last time from Ephesians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll remember those. Colossians chapter 3, that there were two lists there in Colossians 3, that which was incompatible and that which was inconsistent. We will always struggle with the inconsistent sins. We will always struggle with that in this life because we're not given the grace of perfection. But there are things that are incompatible and and if our lives are characterized by incompatibility with our eternal inheritance, we we are not abiding in the Lord. Period. I know we have people that will stand on one leg and hop up and down and scream to the housetops that we're saved by grace and it doesn't matter. Your argument is not with poor old Pastor Todd here. Your argument is with the Apostle Paul who says that those who do or practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. End of sentence. Fornication, adultery, effeminacy, homosexuality, all of those things, they are incompatible, not just inconsistent, incompatible with Christianity. And lifestyles that are given to those kinds of sins are not Christian lifestyles, period. But John here says that that's impossible for those who abide in Christ. Those kinds of sins are impossible for us. It's impossible for us to abide in Christ and at the same time in those things. We've put them off. That's what Paul told the Corinthian church. It's what he told the Colossian church. It's what he tells the Ephesian church. And what John here says as well in that same kind of understanding. So we are born again by that incorruptible seed. And when we are born again by that incorruptible seed, these things will not be part of our lives in the sense that we will be cast out of the church to make manifest that they were not all of us. That's the negative side. The positive side is what? He cannot sin. Whosoever is born of God doth not do that kind of sin. His seed, the seed of God, remains in him. And he cannot sin in that way because he is born of God. He cannot apostatize. He cannot become unborn again. The incorruptible seed by which we are born is the same incorruptible seed which we are told here now not only to taste but to continue to drink up. And that same incorruptible seed by which we are born becomes in us then a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Which cannot be undone. So that's the transition portion there from 1 Peter 2. As newborn babes, that is born how? Born by the Spirit and Word of God and then sustained, nourished and kept by the Spirit and Word of God, by that same incorruptible seed. (coughs) Excuse me. All right, so now we move on to the next phrase. Desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. A second imperative. Okay? A second imperative. The first imperative was what? Remember back in, in 122, um, love one another with a pure heart fervently. In order to do that then, he will stack another imperative on top of that, and that is, desire ye the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. The precursor to desiring is to put off those deeds of the old man. Beloved, if we are steeped in guile and malice, 
we will not desire the word of God. In order, then, to that sincere desire of the pure milk of the word, we have to put off the old man. We have to be actively involved in putting off the old man with his deeds. Seeing that we have put on the new man. And we looked at that last week, so we'll not belabor that point here. I'll remind you from especially Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and following what that looks like. He will also, Paul will also bring that to our notice in Colossians chapter 3. Remember what your new creation entails. Knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. This is what God not is working in you, but has worked in you and will continue to mature and bring up. Okay, so coming then to this next section, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Notice what is the means of Christian growth. It's simply the sincere milk of the word. Now, some translations don't have milk of the word. They will have the sincere, reasonable milk or the sincere spiritual milk, or the pure, unadulterated spiritual milk. And that would be a literal translation of the passage. And I don't have any objection to that translation. It's not a textual problem. It's the way you translate the Greek word logikon or logikos. The the authorized version tends more to relate it to the word of God, the logos of God. Okay? But that Greek word logikos is also used in Scripture to, to mean that which is spiritually reasonable, that which pertains to the renewed mind. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. The word reasonable there, logikos. It is something that pertains not just to the mind mentally only but pertains to the renewed, the regenerated mind. It is the spiritual fruit, the spiritual propositions, the spiritual information, the spiritual stuff that we must learn and grow in that only belongs to minds that have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. As living sacrifices then, we take up this, what? This, uh, this, uh, this service unto God, this Worship, present your bodies uh, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable liturgy, is, is what it means. Not just service like a slave would serve a master, but liturgy in the, in the context of worship in that kind of service. Like a priest would in the, in the temple. He has a service to perform, but it's not like, hey... Uh, servant, go get me a cup of water. It's not like that. It's those services that God has ordained for his worship. We bring him those. And what are we bringing him in this passage? Ourselves as living sacrifices because that's what the spiritual mind does. And so it's that same Greek word that, that Peter will use here in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says, uh, this sincere milk of the word, uh, it, it, it might rightly be translated the unadulterated spiritual milk. That's okay. That's a good translation. But, but it does relate to the word of God. Why? Because of our context. Because we've learned, haven't we, to violate the chapter break. And in violating the chapter break, we heard already that we have been born again by the word of God and now we're nourished by that same word. And so when the authorized version translates it as the milk of the word, 
the, the translators are simply hearkening back to verse 22, 23, and 24 of chapter 1, where it is the word of God by which we're born of God and the word of God now by which we grow of God. Okay, so either one of those translations are fine as long as we understand the context of the passage. I think that, the, that it is correct to use the word word there, although I think perhaps that might be better done as an interpretive value rather than a, than a translational one, if that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, ask me later. Sincere milk of the word then is an interpretation rather than a translation. Literally, we have that unadulterated spiritual milk. If the Christian desires to advance then, as he is commanded to do in this passage, it is by this spiritual food, that word of God. So it is indeed reasonable. It is that which pertains to the soul, the regenerated soul. Uh, This word of God finds a home in the hearts of God's people, in their affections, in their intellections, in that whole souled inner man. The word of God becomes that very food. And I don't need to belabor the point, do I? With regard to as babies desire milk, so must the people of God desire the word of God. We used to have a phrase in our house when little ones were in our home and and they were nursing, we would say things like, milk fixes everything. Isn't that true? They bump their heads. What do they want to do? They want that consolation of milk, of nursing. They want that, that, that comfort that consolation, and so on. And beloved, the same thing is true of us. That when we are indeed put to any sort of affliction or injury, the first and best thing we can do is to remember that the spiritual milk fixes everything. There is nothing that you will experience as a Christian that will be remedied by something other than the word of God, as if the milk of the word is somehow inadequate to your needs. No, it has everything you need. We do, with the rest of the Protestant church, teach what? What we call the sufficiency of the scripture. What is the scripture sufficient for? What have we confessed? What does the Bible say? And we'll have to close with this because we're up against the hour We'll, we'll pick up what Christian growth is and so on. We'll, we will begin to pick that up a little bit later in our series. But what are we talking about when we say uh, the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, what we say in our larger catechism is that the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the only rule of faith and obedience I think that the Westminster theologians were astute enough in their use of the English language that they didn't imbibe in a mistake there. When they meant, when they said, excuse me, the only rule of faith and obedience, I think they meant that. I think they knew exactly what they were saying. That they also confessed the old, venerable, and well-respected Protestant doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures. And I'll bet you, although I'm not a betting man, it would not surprise me to know that most of you will be able to come up with at least one of the scripture references that they cited when they when they said that the scriptures are the only rule of faith and obedience. Anybody else thinking of 2 Timothy 3:16? Well, you ought to be thinking of that, right? Let's turn there for a moment and remember Remind ourselves of that good old Protestant and biblical doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures. We'll begin in verse 14. In contrast to what has just gone on, the evil men and seducers that will wax worse and worse, Timothy is counseled instead to do this. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned 
and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I want to pull up right there before we get to the payoff verse and remind you of what Paul just said. He said, I want you to remember, rather than those evil men and seducers that wax worse and worse, I want you to remember the things which you have learned, the things which you have been assured of, and I want you to remember the ones who taught you that. He's already said that that was not only himself, but his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Right? Hasn't he said that already? He has. Okay, so remember who you learned them from so that you may follow their godly example. Remember also what they have taught you and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. It's obvious what he's talking about there. He's not talking about uh, nice pious platitudes or any other such thing. No, his mother and grandmother taught him the Bible. And the apostle Paul has taught him the Bible. So remember that, Paul says which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto most good works. (laughs) Well, when we read it like we've read it, no, it's going to be every good work unto all good works. Now let's violate the chapter break. I charge thee, therefore, same context, we haven't started over here, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, preach the word, be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables listen to all of the appositives that paul uses here the scriptures the word sound doctrine right all of those things are brought together as the same in this passage this is what we need beloved Not only to be born again, but to abide in Christ. A steady, unrelenting diet of the very word of God. And minds that are hospitable to it because they have been born again. There are many who read the Bible, like W.C. Fields toward the end of his life, looking for loopholes. This is not how we read the Bible. We read the Bible like children take up their milk. More on this next week. Let's, Lord willing, let's stand and call upon the word of the Lord. For the name of the Lord. <coughs> Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy good word. For reminding us that we can be called children in a good way that we can think of ourselves as thy children in a good way, that we can behave ourselves as children in a good way before thee. And as that word is sometimes used to chide us for our lack of growth in grace, O Lord, we pray also, if we need that chiding of thine, if we need that correction of thine, that thou wouldst also bring that home to us as well. We thank thee, Lord, that We are born again by an incorruptible seed and sustained by that same incorruptible seed. Thy very word ushered to us by thy spirit and that we cannot be lost as Christ told us that there is none who can snatch us out of thy hand. That thou art greater than all. We thank thee that that seed is an incorruptible seed. That in thy word is light and no darkness at all. Deliver us then from receiving it in a way that would confuse and obscure that certain and true message. That it would be sound doctrine 
that is preached from our pulpits and received by our people. That we would have and that we would confess and forsake where we do not have that kind of credulity and belief and resting and and confidence in thy word because it comes of thee. O Lord, we pray, deliver us from doubting. Deliver us from walking with our eyes instead of walking by faith. Help us, Lord, to receive that good word as that true food for our souls and sustain us thereby unto thine eternal kingdom, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.